Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. Well, good morning. Grab a seat. I'm glad they thinned them out. If it was any more, you couldn't see me, but maybe that might go better for us. I was joking with Buff Chris. I said, you know, if they got too high, you would just see this like little bald cap running. <laughs> but hey, there's still second service. Could happen. Uh, in your seat, you have probably noticed you have this card. Uh, we just want to invite you guys all out. You'll be hearing more about it. Just want to like address it. Thanksgiving communion services on one side. And so if you're like, oh, I'm sitting in a seat that has a white one. I want the black. No, no, they're two-sided. Fancy what they can do nowadays. It's crazy, right? Uh, so one side, Thanksgiving communion service that you guys are invited to, all the details and everything on that. That is a new service that we are putting on. Uh, and then Christmas Eve service as well um, for that. And that's Christmas Eve, so the 24th. Pretty easy. It's the same every year. It's always the 24th. It works out that way. So just wanted to invite you to that. You'll be hearing more about that. But just to really, both services are probably some of our favorites um, that we have been a part of in ministry. And so... Somebody's throwing, ready to throw bottles. All right, I get it. Here we go. It's going to be that Sunday. All right. Jerron got you all fired up last week, and it's like, all right, we're bringing stuff this week. We're bringing it. So, hey, we are walking through our series of Who is Jesus, which is us just walking through the book of Matthew. And, and when we're looking at these few chapters that make up this series of Who is Jesus, this really is kind of the pinnacle of it. This is the fullness that Jesus is going to give and be revealed at this time about who he is. And so we are picking up Matthew chapter 16, only seven verses. We're going to be out before lunch. It's going to be great. Starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We're just going to camp out on these few verses. Definitely a pinnacle uh, time in Jesus's ministry and his life. And he starts with that question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Obviously, he really didn't care. And I think there's a lot of freedom in that. When you quit caring what people think about you, that's really, really nice. Because when I was in middle school, I thought everybody, I cared what everybody thought about me and what you know, their thoughts, their opinions. And then I got a little bit older and I figured out, yeah, nobody was really even thinking about me in the first place. 
And there's just some freedom in that when we don't care what people think. And so obviously Jesus is warming up the disciples. He's taking it because he wants to hear what they think. But he's warming up and he's like, you know, what do the people say about me? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And that title, Son of Man, is, again, Jesus' favorite title of himself, right? Um, And it comes from the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, go back to Daniel chapter 7 with me. Use that as your bookmark. Then it's in your Bible and you're ready to go. So go to Daniel chapter 7. And so Daniel, if you remember Daniel, he is an Israelite. He is taken into captivity by Babylon. Um, He had the whole like, hey, I don't want to eat all the food that you guys are eating. Give me just some fruits, vegetables, see how that works out. Uh, He's got three friends that get thrown in the fire. He's going to get thrown into the lion's den. That's Daniel who we're talking about. And Daniel has a lot of crazy visions. And modern scholars love to try to attack the book of Daniel because of how specific it is. Uh, Would love to get into those someday. But here in chapter 7, he's having this vision of of these four beasts. And they're representing four kingdoms that are going to hit the earth. And with very very close accuracy, Uh, historically, this isn't in scripture, but historically, there is a story that Alexander the Great was rolling in, so he lived, I I think he conquered around like 300 BCs, right in there, and there's a story that, I mean, he's, he's demolishing everything in his wake. There wasn't a city that he didn't take over when he approached it, and he gets to Jerusalem, and the story goes that one of the priests grabbed the Old Testament, and they grabbed the scroll of Daniel, And they go out and they meet Alexander the Great. And they show him in their holy scriptures, him, a mentioning to that. And because of that, he was so impressed by that, that he doesn't destroy Jerusalem. And that is a historical fact. Now, the atheist scholar has no idea why did Alexander the Great stop at Jerusalem when he destroyed everything else. But there's kind of a story there, and I kind of like that story. It makes sense. Puzzle fits together for me. So he's having this vision, and and in verse 9 he says, And as I looked, thrones were placed, not thrown, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And now skip forward to verse 13. And so he sees in these night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages would, should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so when Jesus is rolling around calling himself the Son of Man, like us and our, you know, uh, this Western mindset, not a strong understanding of the Old Testament as a whole. Okay, son of man, sounds good. But you say that into a body of Jewish people that know the Old Testament? Oh, you think you're the son of man. They, there was an immediate context that that was given. And so Jesus asking his disciples, well, who do people say that the son of man is? But in the Old Testament, the Son of Man links him to his earth, to earth and his earthly mission. It emphasizes Jesus, his lowliness and his humility, born in a manger, 
came, he had to humble himself, emptied himself, as Paul would say in Philippians, just to, be, just to take on flesh. It points to his suffering and his death, and it also points to his future reign as king. And so God revealed Jesus to the world in that he fulfilled Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, because they knew the Son of Man would be doing these things. And so when he comes on the scene and says, yeah, I'm the Son of Man, and he's doing these things, it, it should fit. If the Old Testament says, hey, this is what the Messiah should be doing, this is what the Son of Man, all these terms are kind of, now we're seeing that are pointed to one individual. Is he walking the walk? Is he talking the talk? Is this everything that we are expecting from the Son of Man or the Messiah? And these aren't just like, like, basic little things like, oh, he's going to have brown hair. Like prophecies to where he was going to be born. And I love those kind because I didn't choose where I was born, right? I wasn't sitting up with God before I was created saying, hey, Florida looks beautiful right about now. No, like why would I pick Missouri knowing Hawaii exists, right? Like, why here in the Midwest in the Bible? But you, 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 you can't pick where you show up. You just show up where you show up. You can't pick the time frame, which is another thing. You can't pick the time frame. You just show up when you show up. So some people are like, oh, you're so young. And some of you guys are, oh, you're so old. Like, I didn't pick that. Trust me, 1985? I don't know if that would have been the year I would have picked. Did you guys see what you were wearing in the 80s? Good night of living. The fashion was bad, the music was bad, just go 60s and 70s, jump right over it, right over it. Wow. Lord, we lift up the sinners and the heathens. Did our pastor really do that? Hey, man of righteousness. Where were we at? What were we talking about? What are we... You threw me off. I was doing so good. Not really. I was doing so mediocre. <laughs> but you don't get to pick when you show up. You don't get to pick where you show up. And there's all these prophecies. You don't pick the family that you get to show up to. Trust me. I wouldn't pick my family. No offense, family. Love you. Mean it. You're probably watching online. But I probably wouldn't have picked that. But here's all these prophecies of the Messiah that Jesus fully fulfills. And so God reveals Jesus to the world in that. And I love that. Like, yeah, there was at the time at his baptism, you know, the clouds part, you hear the voice, this is my son who I'm well pleased. Like, that's awesome that there is authority that is pointing to him to say, hey, there it is. But there's, well, what if you weren't there? But there is a sense that we all can look and understand and see the prophecies in the Old Testament. And then not like, I remember the first time I learned the time frame between the old and the new. It wasn't like, okay, next week and then here you got Jesus on the scene. We're talking 400 years from the end of Malachi to the starting of Matthew. 400 years of no prophet. 400 years that God is not speaking. It's just 400 years of silence. No wonder we sing Silent Night at Christmas at the Savior's birth because God's been silent for 400 years and a lot of people ask, well, what was he doing then? Setting the stage for his Messiah. And so as he comes and is born and he takes on flesh and as he talks and what he does and even what he calls himself, he's revealing to him, I'm that Messiah. 
And so what descriptions, you know, when Jesus says, okay, what do the people say about me? What descriptions do the disciples give? And I love this. You know, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah. You know, you always pick the high names, you know, the, those that are like really important. And so if you look, you know, like, okay, some, some say you're like John the Baptist. Because in the same sense, yeah, John the Baptist was this messenger of national repentance, that you need to repent. Well, what was the first thing that Jesus started saying when he came on the scene and he starts his ministry? Repent. Hey, the crazy dude wearing camel fur and eating locust and honey, looking homeless, looking pretty rough, paving the way for the Lord. Yeah, I'm saying the same things. He said repent. I'm telling you to repent. So that's why some line up there or they think, okay, like Elijah, you're doing a lot of these miracles. We go back to the Old Testament. That's kind of like a pinnacle of seeing God's mantle on a man and miracles that were happening. You're like Elijah. You're a miracle worker. Yeah, I mean, that's true to an extent, just like John the Baptist. It's true to an extent, but not fully. Yeah, you're kind of like Elijah, but nah, there's just more to it. And then even another, like prophets who speak the word of God. Like, I love that about Jesus. He's not like... There was a, in the context of the Jewish tradition at this time, they wouldn't speak with authority. They would only quote everybody else, right? So like when I had to write papers in school, you always had to have like references and you had to refer and like, and have, you got to cite your sources. That's what they would do. They wouldn't give any original thought. They would just cite sources from previous rabbis, And so when Jesus rolls up on the scene, he's like, okay, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And so they're looking around like, what kind of authority do you think that you have? Well, I'm the son of man. That word that you have points to me. And so, yeah, he has that authority, but he's just, he's more than just a prophet speaking the word of God. He is the word of God, is the first chapter of John tells us. And so they try to give these descriptions, but they all fall short. And even our world does that the same. Fun little study here. Um, Just going to speak how it is. So if it's coming across bashing and you're offended by that, you're welcome. But what does our world say about Jesus today? And not just like, okay, atheists don't believe he lived or even exists, but even some, we're going to say branches and be very polite, of Christianity. Who do they say Jesus is? So one branch says that Jesus is their elder brother. Jesus, our elder brother. He's the spirit brother of Lucifer, and he's not eternally God. That's what the Mormons believe. Jehovah Witness look at Jesus and Michael, the archangel, as the same being. They believe Jesus is a lesser God, and there's no incarnation and there's no resurrection. They, they look at that in a different light, in a different scope. So both of those actually are not monotheistic, Mormons and Jehovah Witness are polytheistic. They believe in multiple gods because Jesus is a separate lesser God, not a person of the Godhead. Another one, this one's kind of different. Jesus was not himself the Christ. You'd have to separate Jesus as the humanity, just human, just like us, human Jesus. And then there's the Christ. And this is not really a person, just more of a mindset or a thought. And so Jesus was not himself the Christ, but merely embodied the Christ. And they would hold that the blood of Jesus did not, could not cleanse anyone from their sin. That's a mind science, a lady named Mary Eddie Baker. Um, Our fave, uh, some of our favorite celebrities, John Travolta, Tom Cruise, uh, they are into Scientology, if you've ever read up on that. Um, 
That's what you get when a science fiction writer creates a religion. But they believe that they're thetans, that they are uh, implanted aliens on earth, and that you're oppressed by past life and past emotional baggage, and, and you're just clouded and darkened because of whatever, and then they help you process through that and you become more and more clear is the line. And so they would look at Jesus and just say, oh, he's a shade above clear. Okay, there we go. There's, and then if you look at a Hindu or a Buddhist, they would just see Jesus as a holy man, a great moral teacher. Uh, if you ever heard of the Moonies, this is the Unification Church. They believe that Jesus attained a, a lesser level of deity. So he's not fully God. He's just partially God. He's a little God. Little, little fun, a little God over there, just a little God. Um, even one that's real close, uh, uh, Oneness Pentecostal, I uh, won't name drop on some of those because there's uh, some pretty famous musicians and teachers, but they believe Jesus is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that there's not a trinity, there's not three persons and one God, there's one person and one God, and he just shows himself as the Father when he wants to, he shows himself as the Son when he wants to, and he shows himself as the Holy Spirit when he wants to. And so they would deny the Trinity, which uh, is never good. And then lastly, uh, Satanism. They would look at Jesus as an embarrassing, utter failure to humanity. That's what our world says about Jesus, right there. And when we miss, just like they kind of did here, saying John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, da, 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 when we miss the fullness of who Jesus is, we miss it. We miss it. If we don't understand the fullness of who Jesus is, we miss the fullness of what he does. We can't separate who he is from what he has done. You can't separate the person and the work of Jesus. They go hand in hand. And sometimes we try to do that. We love Jesus on these parts and we highlight those parts of our Bible and we love that. And then the parts that are not highlighted, we try to ignore because they scare us. And it's not the parts that I don't understand that scare me about scriptures, it's the part that I do understand, especially like when Jesus says, hey, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me, that one scares me. But when we miss the fullness of who Jesus is, we miss the fullness of what he does, and we can't separate the living word of God from the will of God. We can't separate those two. And so to know who Jesus is, it's to know his mission that he was on. And so some of those that we talked about, they try to do that. Oh, you can't be saved by Jesus, and you don't know who he is. He's just a lesser God, or he's, he's a God amongst a greater God, and you don't know who Jesus is. We were talking as a, uh, it was me and Sean, Pastor Sean, and we were kind of talking about this, and he had a great analogy. It was like, imagine if I describe my wife to you, who has just real cute, short, blonde hair, just the most beautiful brown eyes, really, really, really tan skin, not a freckle on her. Some of you are thinking, wow, lucky pastor. But if you don't know my wife, she has long brown hair, she has blue eyes, covered in freckles, and the rest of it is pale. To her words, not mine. <laughs> She's, she'll be here second service. We'll change the analogy. I could be heartfelt and describe my wife as this short, blonde-haired, brown-eyed girl. The problem is, that's not my wife. That it's not just our emotional thing to say, oh, this is who I believe Jesus to be. We 
do not determine who he is. He reveals to us who he is. You gotta remember, he's saying, I am. I am who I am. Like he, he's not revealing himself to us saying like, hey, can you help me out? Like, who, who do you think I am? No, no, no. He's asking these questions because he wants to reveal. Again, he's always trying to pull out faith in us. He's not asking this question like, who do you say that I am? Because I'm really struggling with that. Could you help me? Like, I'm having an identity crisis. No. He's doing this to pull out faith in us. And so who do you say that I am? He looks at the disciples, he asks this, and I love that the loudmouth never fails to deliver. I wonder if the other 11 were sitting there like, I'm not answering this question. You get this one wrong, who knows what he'll do to you? See how he's been treating the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Like, I'm, I'm just gonna sit here. Because you can look real smart by not talking. Proverbs says a fool is being seen by their many words. But then there's Peter, who just comforts me because we just, for some reason, I feel like I'm like him. I don't know why. But Peter responds. He says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And so what we have to understand is, in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, when it was written, the word Messiah in the Hebrew is the same as the word Christ in the Greek. So when we say Jesus Christ, if we were gonna put that in Hebrew, we're saying Jesus the Messiah. So he's, he's, he's pulling back and reaching back to his Jewish roots and understanding of his Jewish faith, and he's saying the promised Messiah that we have from all of the Old Testament and the promise that we are looking for, you're the fulfillment of that in every way. And what's crazy is we're only at chapter 16. Like if we stopped right now and there was no more New Testament written, is there enough that we could see in Jesus to know that he's the Messiah? Like how do we know that Jesus is the son of the living God? A lot of times we point to later things in his ministry, obviously his life, death, and his resurrection and the ascension. We look at later you know, developments in, on our theology, listening to Paul and what he was talking about with our justification and sanctification and glorification, but right here, even at chapter 16, Peter's able to say, you're the Christ. Really, no, not much more proof I need. I have enough. And a lot of times we treat God that way. We look at Jesus and say, you know what? I'm sitting at about 75% that you're, that you're God. But if you could do a little bit more here in my life, if you could, if you could you know, finagle some stuff, if you're really God and if you really loved me, you would make this better for me. And then I would truly love you and serve you and honor you with my life. But we can't. It's not how we approach God. It's not how he is designed to be approached. And there's three main moments in Jesus' life that he's called the Christ. And I think these are key to look at. So if you have your Bibles, go back to Matthew 2. And we're looking at when he was born. And so if you remember, we got these wise men rolling in. Uh, the old song that's, uh, we don't know for sure that there was three, but we know there's wise men coming from the east. And they say, where is he, this is verse two of Matthew two, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod, the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Well, I told him, Bethlehem. We know that prophecy, that's easy. That's Micah 5 too. We can tell you exactly where he was born. 
And so even from someone who wanted to kill him, where's the Christ gonna be born? And we see this little baby being Jesus being born. So we have the first mentioning there. Here, another, I think here in Matthew 16, and we'll get to it. He's called the Christ, and this is the first mentioning in the Gospels. This is the only Gospel that mentions it, the word church, that there is the body of Christ. And so I think there's a, a tie there, and we'll get to. And then even at his death, so if you flip to Matthew 26, verse 63. So you got the high priest, Jesus, being silent. The high priest says to him, uh, I adjure you by the living God. So we got this title here, living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So he's got these three titles rolling. And listen to Jesus. You have said so. So take those three titles and we're going to mash it with what else? But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. And what I love when it says that he's going to be seated at the right hand, Paul picks up that same thought in Ephesians 1, verse 20, that he who worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Small little sermonette within the sermon. If you struggle with your identity, you understand that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, but then skip down to Ephesians chapter two, verse six, and raised us up. Yeah, we were dead in sin, but he raised us up with him and seated, past tense, us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Know your seat in heaven. There's no backseat Baptist in the kingdom. That Christ is seated at the right hand of God and it says that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. So here Jesus ties all these titles together. The living God, Christ, the son of God, the son of man in his death. So these three main points that he has revealed and showed that he is the Messiah. And when Peter says this, usually Peter's used to saying really stupid things. And he's not done yet. That's why I love Peter. And so he says this, and I just wonder if Jesus was like, that had to come from my father, because I've been listening to you for a good couple years now. That had to be from my father. But he says, blessed are you, Simon, because that wasn't revealed by flesh and blood. That's a spiritual revelation. And so God reveals who Jesus is. And this is the really neat kind of connection between the Father and the Son. So you have God the Father revealing who Jesus is, and then you have Jesus revealing who God is. We read about that in Matthew 11. And so you, you see this kind of, this cooperation between each of them. As, as each reveals the other, the other is revealing the other. So if you want a greater understanding of who God the Father is, look at Jesus. If you want a greater understanding of who Jesus is, look at God the Father. And they're just revealing each other. And then obviously later we'll understand that the Holy Spirit flows from both of them. And so both of them are going to reveal who the Spirit is. And the Spirit reveals who each of them are. It's like this beautiful trinity of each revealing not just themselves but each other to us. So that we would have the fullness of who God is. And so he says this, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says something pretty interesting. And all my you know, Bible study friends really want me to bash the Catholics right now. But let's just listen to what he says. Jesus says, blessed are you, 
This wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father who is in heaven, verse 18. But I tell you, you are Peter. So this is the first time that Peter gets that name. Jesus renames him Peter. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. So let's, let's dive into that just for a small moment. Catholics would believe this is Jesus building his church upon Peter, Simon Peter. And us as Protestants would push back on that. So Peter and the word rock here are very similar. Petra is a feminine noun, means a huge mass of connected rock. And that is distinct from petros, which is masculine. So when he says, and upon this rock I will build my church, he says Petra. But when he looks at Peter, he uses Petros. And it was very specific in that he did that. So Petros, this masculine, is a detached stone or boulder. So you have this high cliff or you have a stone or a boulder. So he's referring to two different things. And so Petra is this solid native rock rising up from the earth like a projecting cliff. Not cliff cliff, like a cliff, a rock cliff, right? And so if you go back to Matthew 7, when it says the wise man builds his house upon the rock, he doesn't say Petros. He says Petra. And so if a wise man builds his house upon Peter, that's just a, a, a detached stone or boulder. That's just a detached pebble. And we know the old hymn, Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Don't you love the good hymns? So much depth there. And so the church is already built upon a man, the God-man, Jesus. And there's no need for pebbles when Christ is our solid rock. Now, where we want to be real quick to slap our Catholic friends, we're just as guilty at times. And our Protestant Western mindset that churches are built upon the man who stands up on a stage in a platform like this. And we'll never say that. You can't say that out loud. That's heretical. But time and time again, when you see the pastor take the church in another direction or another uh, passion for ministry, or even worse, if there is a moral failure in that role and how the dis sheep scatter, you see it in senior pastors, you see it in youth pastors. It's one of my biggest frustrations with youth ministry that I left. Seeing how many kids walked away and quit going and being a part of the church. Why? Because I left. And I've told them, your faith was in me then. It wasn't in Jesus. And I'll fail you every time. Don't put your faith in me. Put your faith in Jesus. And the same is here. We're all just interim. I'm not gonna be the senior pastor forever. Nor would we want that. I don't know if I have that kind of shelf life. I'm like an organic avocado. Not a Twinkie. Twinkie will last forever, not a Twinkie. Organic avocado. But there's gonna be another person, and that's the thing. We just show up when we show up. We serve the Lord in the capacity that he gives us, and we serve and honor him, and it's not about us. And we can't build this upon us. It's built upon him. And so where we wanna be really, really quick to slap the Catholics, honestly, I think it's hypocrisy because we do it just as much. Might not be a strong theology in our doctrine, publicly, but I think sometimes it can be in our heart. And so Jesus first asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And then this is what I love. Who do you say that I am? And then he's like, well, let me tell you who you are. See the connection there? 
that our identity in Christ is directly correlated to our identification of who he is. So when we look and we want to understand who our identity in Christ is, that's going to be directly correlated to our understanding of who Christ is. One way I would say it like this, if we have a low view of self, that means we have a low view of God because we don't understand who we are in Christ. We don't understand the value that God has in us. We don't understand what God has paid for us. We don't understand the cross. We don't understand the Messiah. If we have a low view of ourself, if we beat ourselves up, and it can be really faint and small and just simple little words, where it's not even what other people are saying about us, it's what we say about ourselves. One of the biggest issues I had when I was a youth pastor in my youth ministry was cutting. I had a lot of students that cut. And that's just a symptom, that's just a sore throat. What was the core issue? They didn't understand the value, the purpose. They didn't understand their identity in Christ. That was one of the sermons I would preach frequently and in different ways. Is your identity in Christ or are you having an identity crisis? But we have to understand who we are in Christ and it's gonna be directly correlated and connected to our understanding of who Jesus is. And so this self-help, look at myself and what do I need to do and pick myself up by my bootstraps, get out of that. Quit buying it. There's a reason, there's a New Times bestseller every couple weeks about some self-help book because it's trying to provide what it can't and it was never meant to, but the word of God will absolutely fulfill that gap and that void that you have in your life. Ever so small, ever so big, he His grace, his mercy, his love, his truth is more than sufficient for us. So lean in and understand who you are in Christ and that's when we understand who we are. And so the question is before each and every one of us, who do you say Jesus is? Paul in Philippians 3 would say it this way, get through all the junk. All the, he had all these good things about his life and he lists them right there at the beginning of Philippians 3 and he goes, but I count it all as loss. I count it as dung, as refuse compared to knowing Christ. Who do you say Jesus is? Not, okay, yeah, I go to church on Sunday and might do this little daily devotion. No, no, who do you say Christ is? Because if we don't have that right, we get nothing right. We have to get that right. That is a pinnacle part of what it is. And what I love about Peter is how much theology did he throw out there? You're the Messiah, son of the living God. Everything that this promised, you fulfilled. And I put my trust and hope in you. He didn't write this massive dissertation And we have whole classes of Christology that I've had to take one too many of. And you just mind-numbingly beat your face into these massive books that these guys write. And sometimes about topics that I even wrote one time in a paper, I don't even see how this matters. Still got an A. I thought that was cool. (laughs) And I remember the topic, but I thought at the end of the day, it doesn't change anything because it's a hypothetical that could never happen. They just wanna know your stance on it. I think sometimes we have overcomplicated something so simple. Who 
is Jesus to you? Not, are you going to get the right answer? Are you, are you going to say it differently than me? Oh, I hope so. We're different. You know, if you're a 60-year-old woman, I hope who Christ is to you is different than he is to a 36-year-old man. Or I would never look at my daughters, you know, like take my young ones, my six and nine-year-old, be like, who is Christ to you? And then just slap the snot out of them because they got it wrong. No. Who is Christ to you? Who do you say that Jesus is? Our eternity rests in the weight of our response. And what I love is it's not an intellectual thing. It's not like you're looking at Jesus and saying, okay, virgin birth, agree, disagree, strongly disagree. Miracle worker, agree, disagree. It's not fill in the bubble. It's not this intellectual thing. But when Peter responded, it is this heartfelt understanding and surrendering to him. And that's the same call that we have on our lives. And when we say, when we are asked, who do you say that Jesus is? We don't just say it. It, it changes our response that we surrender to him. And it's in his name. It's kind of fun. So if you look at these couple things that he has said, hey, uh, you're the Christ. And even at the end of this little passage, he is, you know, strictly charges the disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. So he's like, pretty much like, you got it right, but don't tell anybody. And we love that verse, right? We're like, oh, let's be like the disciples there. We don't have to tell anybody about Jesus. And even though there's churches that'll say, hey, we want to go make disciples, they live out that verse more than they really want to admit, where they almost kind of act like they're strictly charged to tell no one. Now, yes, there's a season and there's a reason for that, but that's not us. For us, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. But what's really neat is if you look at those words, Christ, you know, Messiah in the Hebrew means anointed, be the anointed one or the chosen one. And we understand in biblical times, anointing somebody with oil was a sign that God was consecrating or setting apart that person for a particular role. There could only be one Messiah, and that's it. If you do the study, there's about 40, I think the last time I did it, that are living, breathing right now, there's about 45 people on earth that believe that they are Jesus. That's how crazy our world is, right there. That there are people that believe that they are God. But there's only one that is set apart for a particular role. There can only be one. So the fact that there's multiple, there can only be one. And so an anointed one was someone with a special God-ordained purpose. And that's the Messiah, or the word Christ. Now what's fun is in the Greek, the same root word is where we get the word church from. So in the Greek, in the New Testament, ekklesia is the word for church, and it literally means a called out assembly. See the correlation a little bit? You have this Christ who is anointed and set apart for a special role, and if we're going to follow him, guess what his following is going to be as well? Called out and set apart and not a part of this world. And so the words Christ and church share that same root in the Greek, and what that tells me, it's impossible for us to try to fit into this world and follow a called out, anointed, set apart Jesus. So just like our understanding and our identification in him is our identification of us and our identity, the same for us as a local body of believers. 
that when we understand who Jesus is, it under, we understand our calling to be set apart, ordained, anointed, not with oil, but anointed with the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ and given his word. And so when we understand who Jesus is individually, corporately, we understand the mission that we are a part. So just as God has set apart Jesus, anointed him for a specific purpose, Jesus calls us out just the same. And so you're not gonna fit into the world. And don't struggle in that. Count it worthy. Count it worthy that you don't fit into this world and that our morals and values and our, the, the things that we hold so near and dear and what we do with our time, talent, and treasure, even though the world would call it foolishness and crazy, look what God says when he sees us. This is my church. This is my bride. These are my people. So count it worthy when we just don't fit in. I think Jaron said it last week. We're just stamping our passport. We're just an alien here. We're not gonna fit in. Go to Honduras. You will not fit in. Go to, is he in here? No, I think he's online upstairs. Go to Sierra Leone with Ben Baum and see if you fit in there. No, we're not. The culture's different. The language is different. The food is different. We're not meant to fit in here. Why? Because we're just passing through. We're not home yet. But why we're here, God's got a plan. God has a purpose for us. And there's a reason. If there wasn't, we would just baptize you and hold you until the bubble stops. Send you on home. I'm never getting baptized here. But God still has more for us. And so from the day we say yes to Jesus until the day we stand before him, we are to be this called out, set apart, anointed and appointed body for his will, for his special purpose. That is what it means when we say, who is Jesus to us, and we surrender to him. So whatever he says, whatever he leads and guides us in, we respond with yes and amen. Why? Because he is my Christ. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. So Father, we come to you, and we thank you that we have you that you have revealed yourself time and time again to us. And I pray each and every one of us would grab a hold of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and knowing those that leads us to the, our purpose and our mission to be these little Christs full of grace and mercy and love and truth to walk around and bring kingdom impact in the broken world in which we live, giving all glory to you, giving you all honor and praise. So give us that kind of faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. You guys have a great week. Calvary Lake Ozark, you are sent. Go love God, love others, impact this world.